Acts chapter 16. And <clears throat> read just a couple of verses and then we'll open in a word of prayer. I'll start reading verse... I'll start in verse 14 just to pick up the context from last week. Acts 16 verse 14 says, And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, beside the Lord open, and that she attended under the things which were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptised and her household, she besought us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. And it came to pass as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. The same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. Let's open a word of prayer. <clears throat> Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we do indeed give thanks unto you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for the wonderful privilege we have of a meeting together and coming and, and worshipping you, lifting our voices up in praise to, to you as King. Lord, we pray as we come round your word this morning that you would speak to our hearts, that you would teach us, you would encourage us, uh, refresh us through your word this morning. Lord, I pray that you would empower me through the Holy Spirit this morning. Lord, it would be your words, it would be your thoughts, and that, Lord, you would uh, just bless in everything we do now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> now, of course, last week we uh, began uh, looking at uh, these verses from verse 14 onwards, and we said that Luke... Uh, singles out here in Acts chapter 16, he singles out three individuals who were converted uh, by Paul and his missionary team here in Philippi. And we said that these three individuals, they differ greatly from one another. Okay, it's almost as if you know, they're, they're chosen deliberately, well I'm sure they are by the Holy Spirit, chosen deliberately, they're selected to, to show that the grace of God is available to all. You know, that it doesn't matter know who you are it doesn't matter your standing in society it doesn't matter what your background is god's grace is available to all okay god's god's saving grace is the same for all it's no difference god loves all the same now the first of these three converts we saw last week was lydia the seller of purple now we saw that lydia she was a an independent businesswoman no she was an an upstanding citizen there in in philippi she was someone of reputable character and she was a God-fearer, okay, which we said was a, a Gentile who feared the God of the Jews. And so she was among the women who were gathered at the, the river for prayer when Paul and his companions arrived and they spoke concerning the truth. We saw last week that she heard the message, the Spirit opened her heart to the truth and she acted upon it, she received it and she got saved. Immediately after getting saved, she, she got baptized in obedience to the Lord, and then she used what God had given her to further the ministry of the Lord, to further the work. She opened her home to the missionary team. She showed them hospitality, inviting them to stay with her while ever they remained in Philippi. And she also allowed the church to begin to meet at her house as well. And so this morning now we come to the second convert a young damsel who couldn't be more different from lydia she's completely different the other end of the spectrum if you like this damsel here is a, a demon possessed slave and she's exploited by her masters 
And so this morning, let's consider the events uh, that unfold here and, and consider the truths contained therein. And so first of all, we see here this morning the deliverance of the slave, the deliverance of the slave. Verse 16, it's waiting. Let's just read it again. It says, And it came to pass, as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. The same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this did she many days, but Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. And we're not told how long after Lydia's conversion these events take place. But we are told that it occurs as Paul and his companions are going to prayer. Okay, so it starts out in verse 16. It says, And it came to pass as we went to prayer. And so we assume that they're going down to the same place where they met Lydia. They're going down to the river, to this unofficial meeting place for the Jews and for those who fear the Lord, uh, this place of prayer. We assume that that's where they are heading to. And as they're going to pray, um, they're met by this young damsel who's demon-possessed. In particular, here we're told that she's possessed with a spirit of divination. Okay, it says, And it came to pass, as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us. She's said to have a spirit of divination. Now, this literally means a spirit, a python. That's what it means. A spirit, a python. And it refers to a demonic spirit. The python was a mystical snake or dragon that was worshipped at Delphi. Okay, and it was associated with the pagan god Apollo. Now, if you search Delphi, you'll come up with images of this, this grand temple on top of a hill. That's where uh, this oracle abided, okay, who was empowered by this so-called snake, python. Okay, and when the oracle was possessed, the oracle would speak the words of Apollo. Okay, well, that's what the people believed. Okay, and so the term python began to be used to speak about anyone who was possessed by a python spirit. Okay, anyone who could speak on behalf of Apollo, basically. Okay, so basically this slave here, anytime she had one of her trances or she spoke involuntary or whatever it might be, the people viewed it as being the voice of the god Apollo. Okay, that's what she was viewed as being, the voice of the god Apollo. And therefore, you know, she was in much demand, as you can imagine. Okay, the people wanted to know what she had to say. She, they wanted to know their futures. And so as you can imagine, in ancient times, you know, this brought her masters much gain. As it says there in verse 16 at the end, <clears throat> it says, which brought her masters much gain by Susang. Now these men, her masters, were profiting off her supposed ability. They were profiting off their slaves' demon possession. You know, emperors, military commanders, even the common people wouldn't make decisions <clears throat> without first consulting an oracle like this young slave. They would seek someone like this to, to get you know, guidance, if you like. They wanted to know what's going to happen if we make this choice, if we go down this road. And so they were in much demand. Okay? Anyone like this was in demand. 
You know, basically, this, go- this, this girl sorry, was a gold mine to her masters. That's what she was. She was a gold mine. She was a money-making machine to her masters because everybody wanted to know what the oracle, speaking on behalf of Apollo, had to say. I told him in verse 17 that this demon-possessed girl, she followed Paul and his team, constantly crying out, these men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. So she's following them, and she's crying out these words, which are the truth, are they? aren't they? She's crying out that they're the servants of God, and they have the message of salvation. See, basically, this demon-possessed girl, she recognized Paul and his team for what they were. She recognized them for being the servants of the one true and living God. And as such, they could make known the way of salvation. She recognized this why? Because of the demon possession. The demon knew who they were. Now his declaration, sorry, her declaration here concerning Paul and his team is very similar to the words of the demon possessed man in Mark chapter 5. Just turn over there. In Mark chapter 5, we have the the demon-possessed man of the Gadarenes. Let's just start in verse 1 of Mark 5. It says, And they came over unto the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gadarenes. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs. And no man could bind him, no, not with chains, because they had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him. And the fetters broken in pieces, neither could any man tame him. And always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. But when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him and cried with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? I adjure thee by God, that thou torment me not." Verse 7 there, this demon-possessed man, he recognizes Christ, doesn't he? And he says, thou art the son of the most high God. Indeed, it's very similar wording, isn't it, to what we find here in Acts chapter 16. Except here in the present passage, the the demon-possessed slave girl, she recognizes them as being the servants of the most high God. The point is that, you know, demonic spirits are able to identify the presence and the power of, of Almighty God, aren't they? Now, whether that's in Christ himself as the Son of God, or whether that's in his ambassadors, his disciples, apostles, and indeed in us. Demon, uh, demonic spirits are able to recognize the power of God. And so this slave girl, she recognizes the power of God in Paul and Silas and the rest of his team. And so this slave girl, she follows them daily. Through the streets of Philippi, she's following them and she's constantly crying out this same message. You know, these men are the servants of the Most High God. They, they show unto us the way of salvation. I told him in verse 18 that this goes on for many days. Okay, It says in verse 18 there, and this did she many days. And so it's happened for a while now. Continually, daily, she's following them. She's crying out this message. And finally, we're told that Paul is grieved by the constant harassment of this evil spirit, and so he acts. It says there in verse, let's read verse 18, and this she did many days, but Paul being grieved. 
turned and said to the spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. Paul, it says, is grieved by the constant harassment. This word grieved here means that he was troubled or disturbed. He's troubled and disturbed to the point where he can't stand it any longer. He's had enough. And he turns and he does something about it. He turns and he commands the spirit to leave this girl in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you might ask, why didn't Paul do it earlier? Well, you know, one commentator suggested perhaps he didn't know that she was demon-possessed at first. Maybe he just thought she was some girl crying out things, following them around. But then at any point, eventually it grieves him to the point where he does something. He acts. He tells the spirit to leave this girl in the name of Christ. And it says at the end of the verse that the spirit left her the same hour. Now, there is no doubt that Paul and his companions would have had compassion on this girl. I'm sure when Paul realized she was demon-possessed, he had compassion upon her. This one who's ensnared by a demon. But the passage records that he's worn down. That's how the passage points it to us, isn't it? Okay, I'm sure he had compassion, but the passage points out to us that he's worn down by this persistent harassment to the point that he finally acts. You know, while there's no record here in the passage that the girl got saved, that is the assumption that we make. We make that assumption because, you know, in the Gospels, others who were delivered from demonic possession also experienced spiritual salvation. Okay, spiritual um, uh, deliverance as well. Just go back to Mark chapter 5, where we were earlier. Mark chapter 5. Mark 5, let's just read from verse 18. It says, And when he was come into the ship, he that had been possessed with the devil prayed him that he might be with him. Happy Jesus suffered him not, but saith unto him, Go home to thy friends, and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee, and hath had compassion on thee. And he departed and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him. And all men did marvel. Mark chapter 5, it's evident that the man, he had spiritual deliverance as well, didn't he? Okay, he had spiritual deliverance. He turns to the Lord as well after the Lord has delivered him from this demon possession. And so it's not unreasonable to assume that this girl, when she's freed from this, this burden upon her, that she also comes to the Lord. Now, indeed, you know, we would expect Paul to have shared with her the gospel, wouldn't we? You know, Paul is not going to just cast out the demon and then walk away and leave this poor girl. Even though it's not recorded in the passage, we know Paul would have shared with her the gospel truth, wouldn't he? Because that's who Paul was. That's what Paul did. We know Paul would have taken the time to share with her the truth, not just cast out the demon. And so we assume that she gets saved here as well. Now the question might be asked, you know, why was Paul so grieved by her following them around and crying out that they were the servants of God with the message of salvation? You know, surely this was a case of good publicity and free publicity. Now, what she was declaring was the truth. She wasn't lying, was she? She was telling the truth. They were the servants of God. They did have the message of salvation. But the problem lied not in what she was saying. It lied in the fact that she was a known representative of the pagan god, Apollo. That's where the problem was. 
She's a known representative, known oracle, if you like, of Apollo. And so her constant heralding of the fact that they were the servants of God with the message of salvation, it was misleading the people, wasn't it? Because you see, the people then would have been led to believe that Paul and his companions were allies of Apollo. They were with this slave girl. They agreed with her. If Paul did nothing, that was the assumption, wasn't it? That's the assumption that the people would have been led to believe. And so Paul needed to put a stop to it, didn't he? He needed to put a stop to it. He needed to distance himself from this girl, distance the Lord from it as well, and show there's two different extremes. They're not together. They're not allies at all. They're enemies. It's the same reason that Christ had to stop the demons from testifying about his identity in Mark chapter 1. Just go back there with me. Mark chapter 1 and verse 24. We'll start in verse 23. It says, And there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee, uh, I know thee, who thou art, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. And Christ told the, the demon to stop testifying who he was. It's the same reason, isn't it? Christ was distancing himself from the demon, from the, the demonic spirits. And so Paul and his team do the same thing here. They distance themselves from this uh, demon that was possessing this slave girl. And so we see that Paul, in the name of the Lord, commands this demon to leave this poor damsel. He gives her deliverance, doesn't he? Deliverance from this thing that's ensnared her. Gives her spiritual deliverance as well. But you know, this good deed carries with it consequences for Paul and his missionary team. Let's now consider the second point this morning, the suffering missionaries. The suffering missionaries. Verse 19, we read this. It says, And when her masters saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace unto the rulers. And brought them to the magistrates, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city, and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither observe, being Romans. And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely. Who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison, and made their feet fast in the stocks. We're told in verse 19 that when the slave girl's masters saw that the means of making money from her was gone, you know, it's been taken away, she can't, you know, soothsay anymore, she can't predict anyone's future or supposedly do that anymore, their means of making money has been taken away, you know, they react with anger, don't they? In verse 19, we're told that they react by seizing Paul and Silas and they drag them into the marketplace to face the rulers of the city. And the marketplace was the place where public meetings would take place. It was, it was where the rulers would sit to oversee, a dispute, to oversee these things. And so this is where Paul and Silas are dragged to. In verse 19, we're told that they're brought before the rulers of the city. And in verse 20, these same rulers are called 
magistrates. Okay, the end of verse 19 there it says, And drew them into the marketplace unto the rulers, and brought them to the magistrates. Now the term magistrates here, it's plural, because in Roman colonies there was always two. Okay, there was always two elected officials. And these elected officials were called dumvirs, or, or the preferred title of praetor. I'm probably sure you've heard that title before, I'm sure. Praetor, okay? It's a Latin word. Okay, it's the Latin word that's equivalent of this Greek word here, which means magistrates. Okay, so Luke here is giving us the exact title, isn't he? Okay, he's saying the, the praetors, okay, the, the magistrates. And these magistrates in each city, they presided over the assemblies, okay? They, they dispensed justice. And they did so from a rectangular um, podium, which was called the rostra in Latin, or the bema in Greek, the bema seat. And so Paul and Silas here are dragged, where? Before the local bema seats to face judgment at the hand of the praetors, the magistrates. And the charge laid against them was that they were troubling the city. Verse 20 there it says, And brought them to the magistrates, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city. They're accused of troubling the city, causing, you know, uh, uh, an uproar, if you like. They're causing an unsettling of the peace. And they're accused of doing this by teaching customs which were not lawful for the Romans. Verse 21 it says, and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe being Romans. So they accuse them of troubling the city by teaching a religion, teaching customs which were not lawful for the Romans to practice. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? There's no mention here of the fact that Paul had cast out a demon. They don't come to the magistrate and say, they've cast out the demon out of this slave girl. They don't mention that. They don't mention that their financial gain, their, the means of financial gain has been taken away, which of course was the real reason, wasn't it? That's the real reason they dragged them before the magistrates. Instead, they accuse Paul and Silas here of being vagabond Jews who are disturbing the city by teaching things that don't conform, don't agree with Roman law. You know, they made this accusation because they knew it would get a response. That's why they made that accusation. They knew it would get a response. You see, there was already the beginning of anti-Jewish feelings spreading across the Roman Empire. If you go to chapter 18 and verse 2, <clears throat> we'll start in verse 1. Chapter 18, verse 1, it says, and these, After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth and found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome and came unto them. And so chapter 18, verse 2, we learn that the Roman emperor, Claudius, has expelled the Jews from Rome. Okay, He's done so, accusing them of causing civil unrest. And so the accusation that they then lay against Paul and Silas is, if you like, you know, it's, it's appealing to the general feeling of the people, isn't it? That the Jews, they're troublemakers. You know, oh, the Jews, they're terrible people. That's why they bring them and say, these Jews are causing problems. 
They're appealing to the general feeling of the population. And the particular law that they accuse Paul and Silas of breaking is one that forbade Roman citizens from practicing anything other than a religion that's sanctioned by the state. Okay, so basically laws had to be either deemed legal or illegal. Okay, so you had to be, it had to be legal to be able to practice it and teach it to the Romans. You know, the Romans, they were very tolerant of other religions as long as that religion didn't threaten their political security of the empire or that it didn't practice acts that were deemed to be morally reprehensible like human sacrifice. And you see, this would later lead to the systematic persecution of the Christians. Why? Because they were accused of both things. They were accused of rebelling against the empire because they served Christ as king. And they were accused of cannibalism because of the Lord's table. And so both of these things were used against the Christians to systematically persecute the believers. And it's that same law that Paul and Silas are now accused with breaking. They're charged with disturbing the peace by teaching a religion that goes against the Roman law, the Christian faith. This is what the accusation is. You've, you've taught something that goes against the Roman law. In verse 22, we're told that the assembled multitude here, they immediately react to the accusations by getting extremely angry. It says in verse 22, and the multitude rose up together against them. You know, the, these men who accused Paul and Silas here, they knew what buttons to press, didn't they? They pressed all the right buttons and the multitude is immediately upset by the accusations. You see, the Roman citizens, you know, they were offended. You know, how dare these outsiders come into our city and peddle their religion that doesn't agree with our Roman law? How dare they? That's basically what's happened here. Okay? They've pressed all the right buttons, haven't they? And the magistrates, you know, they duly respond to the crowd. And they immediately have Paul and Silas stripped and beaten. Verse 22 again, it says, And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. Now, there's no trial here, is there? There's no investigation into the accusations. There's, there's no questioning of Paul and Silas and giving them a chance to defend themselves. No, the magistrates just take the word of the accusers, listen to the crowd, and they beat Paul and Silas. In verse 23, we're told that this beating involved many stripes before they're taken to prison. It says, And when they laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely. So they lay many stripes upon them. They give them a severe beating here before they put them in prison. And you know, this beating here would have been carried out by the sergeants, which are mentioned later in the chapter. Verse 35 says, And when it was day, the magistrates sent the sergeants, saying, Let those men go. And in verse 38 as well, it says, And the sergeants told these words unto the magistrates, and they feared when they heard that they were Romans. Okay, so it's these sergeants who would have carried out the beating. Okay, in the Latin, these sergeants were known as lictors. They were the official bodyguards of the magistrates, the, the praetors. Effectively, they were the police within the Roman colony. And these lictors would carry 
a, a bundle of rods as a symbol of their office. And amongst the bundle of rods would also be an axe. Okay, if you Google them, you'll see a picture of these men with a bundle of rods and an axe. Basically, it was a symbol of the magistrate's right to carry out corporal and capital punishment. Corporal punishment with the rods, capital punishment with the axe. And it was these rods, okay, these rods that they held, it was these rods that Paul and Silas would use to beat, sorry, that Paul and Silas were beaten with by the lictors. And it was not the only time that Paul suffered this punishment. You know, around five years later in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, Paul would write that on three occasions he was beaten with rods. He's referring to the rods of the lictors. Okay, so at least one of those occasions is here in Philippi. We don't know when the other two were. But they happened at the hands of these magistrates' bodyguards, the magistrates' police, if you like. And after this severe beating, they're taken and they're handed over to the custody of the jailer with instructions to keep them securely or keep them safely, it says at the end of verse 23. You know, the jailer, he takes these instructions very seriously, doesn't he? He treats them like dangerous criminals. He, he takes them, he puts them in their innermost cell, the, the maximum security. And not only that, but he places their feet in the stocks as well. Verse 24, it says, And having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. Now, these stocks were not exactly like we imagine. Okay? We normally picture stocks as having just two holes for your feet, don't we? These, these Roman stocks would have numerous holes at different margins apart. And the point was that they would stretch the prisoners' legs as far as they could to torment them and leave them in that position with that you know, discomfort and cramping pain. It was torture. That's what, Rome, that's what Paul and Silas here are being put into, these Roman stocks. And so they've been beaten severely. And now they're put in prison, in the innermost prison, and they're put in these stocks being tortured. And that's the situation they find themselves in. You know, Paul would later summarise the treatment that they received at Philippi as being shameful. You go to 1 Thessalonians with me, chapter 2. First <clears throat> Thessalonians 2 and verse 2. It says, But even after we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. Paul says they were shamefully treated. And he's speaking about the suffering that they, had, that they faced at Philippi. And they suffered that for the cause of Christ, didn't they? Now when we consider this event here, you know, it would have been extremely easy for Paul and Silas to become discouraged, wouldn't it? Extremely easy for them to get upset at their their treatment, upset at the situation they found themselves in, it would have been easy for them to fight back, to get angry. I mean, the reality was they'd done nothing wrong, had they? They had done nothing wrong. They, they were falsely accused. They were innocent. They hadn't been stirring up strife, had they? They hadn't been going around stirring, stirring up strife. They hadn't been disturbing the peace. They were falsely accused by men who had lost their financial gain. So brought before the, the magistrates and they were condemned without even a trial. 
Indeed, it would have been very easy for them to become discouraged. But how do we find Paul and Silas? Verse 25 says, And at midnight Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. Isn't that incredible? (laughs) Considering the beating that they've just suffered, many stripes, a severe beating, and they've been put in these stocks, they've been tortured, they're in the innermost prison. It's not like our prisons, is it? It's a horrible place to be. And yet here they are praising God. Instead of blaming God, instead of becoming upset and angry at the situation, Paul and Silas are praising God in the midst of their suffering. Now on Wednesday night, we looked at the fact that, you know, Matthew chapter 5, Christ says, blessed are the meek. We talked about meekness, didn't we? For those who were here. And we said that meekness was that attitude that accepts God's dealings with us as good with unquestioning submission. And it's manifested in power under control. Paul and Silas are an example of meekness, aren't they? These men were meek. They were totally surrendered to the will of God as being good. Even though they're suffering horribly, they're praising God. They surrendered to him. Now, they didn't understand God's plan, but they without question surrendered to God and praised him in the midst of the trial. You know, Paul practiced what he preached, didn't he? Turn over quickly to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4, verse 4. Philippians 4, verse 4, Paul says this, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16, he says, Rejoice evermore. Paul practiced what he preached, didn't he? Here he is, suffering, and he's rejoicing. He's praising God. You know, the reality is that this is how God desires all of us to react in the midst of the trials and and affliction that we face. You know, James 1 verse 2, verse we know well, it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. You know, the only way we can rejoice like Paul and Silas, the only way we can react like that in the midst of trials is when we understand that God is, is in control that god is on the throne that god is king that he has a reason he has a plan he has a purpose see it's only when we are meek accepting god's dealings with us as being good without question submitting to him only when we are meek will it be possible to rejoice in the trials we face well we need to remember that god has a reason for everything we go go through He allowed it to come. There is a plan. There is a purpose. We just need to submit to him, trust ourselves to his care. As as we'll see next time, God did indeed have a plan for Paul and Silas, didn't he? Because of their imprisonment, the third major convert here in chapter 16, the Philippian jailer, would come to the Lord. God had a purpose, didn't he? God had a plan. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, We, Lord, we thank you for this passage here in Acts chapter 16. And, Lord, we thank you for uh, Paul and Silas, Lord, for their ministry. And, Lord, even though they suffered greatly for doing a good deed, for for, uh, delivering this girl of her demon possession, Lord, they praised you in the midst of that suffering. And, Lord, I pray you help us all to learn from that example. Lord, help us all to be meek. Help us all to be fully surrendered to to your will, trusting in you, knowing that you're in control, knowing that you're on the throne, that you are king. 
Lord, may you bless now as we close. May we depart from this place singing upon these great truths, we pray in Jesus' name.